Christ followers from the first century to the present have wrestled with sexual temptation just like everyone else. Our Bible teacher, Dave Wordson, invites you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul talks with the Corinthians about their commitment to sexual purity. Dave introduces this section by reminding us that times of great promiscuity among church leadership is not anything new, and God's redemptive plan for this planet doesn't come crashing to a halt because of a sexual sin. But we had all better learn and apply what the Apostle Paul has to say about victory in this area. Dave? In the time of Martin Luther, the Italian papacy down in Rome was living licentiously. They were living in rank materialism. They were having mistresses by the scores, and everyone knew it. And as a result, the name of Christ was dragged into the gutter. And yet out of that time of gross immorality among the leadership of the church, the Lord produced the Reformation. And the essence of that Reformation was that the only way we can be just, the only way we can be pure, is by faith. I think we can all ask ourselves the question, why? Why does the church have such a problem with purity? Why does church leadership have such a problem with maintaining the standards of God in the sexual area. I believe that a lot of it is because it's a tremendous spiritual struggle. I think it's because Satan hates sexuality so much that it becomes a focal point of intense spiritual warfare. I think that our pride, a pride that a man of God can have, that I can have, can cause us to begin to take for granted the hand of God upon our life. We can assume that because God is using us spiritually, that we can lower our own personal standards a little bit. If you do it just a tiny bit, and then God in His grace continues to use you, it makes you very vulnerable because you can feel like Samson, the Holy Spirit still comes upon me. And therefore, I can do what I want to do. For example, Samson would sleep all night with a harlot, wake up in the middle of the night, go out, the Spirit of God would come upon him and he still had the strength to lift the gates of a Philistine city on his shoulders and carry it to the top of a mountain. But little by little, Samson began to take for granted the free gift, the gracious gift of the Spirit's power. And you remember how his eyes were put out because he was deceived by sexual lust and Delilah was able to get at the secret of his strength and this great hulk of a spiritual man a man that had the purpose in his life to deliver his people from the hands of an enemy, spent many years of his life in prison. The joyous reality of the story of Samson is that his hair grew back again, which was a story of grace. In spite of all that failure, the loss of sight, blindness, imprisonment, there came a day when his hair grew again, and the Lord gave him his strength one last time, and it enabled him in his life to accomplish the purpose that God had and that was to deliver his people from the enemy. And so in the midst of all the scandals, I hope that we will be reminded of the intense spiritual warfare, the intensity of the temptation. But I also hope that unlike the world, we will realize that though God never takes sin lightly, and though there are intense consequences and very difficult scars that remain, that God in his grace can produce forgiveness and it will not ultimately lead 
to the failure of his purpose on the earth. Something else that really encourages me in the word of God is the intense reality of the Holy Scripture. I think when I was raised, if you would have talked to me about spiritual leaders that visit prostitutes and spiritual leaders that have affairs, I would have thrown up my hand in exasperation as a young adolescent and said, how could that ever be the church? And how could Jesus ever be who he says he is if there's that kind of problem? And I know that maybe some of you have been thinking that because it's one of the thoughts that comes into my mind. What's the use? I mean, if great men that herald the gospel can fall, people that are used mightily to bring people into the kingdom can fall, then what's the use? And I appreciate so much the fact that in the Holy Scriptures, these problems have already been dealt with. You see, the Corinthian church back in the very first century had many believers in their group that were deeply involved in sexual immorality. Paul did not throw up his hand in exasperation and say, well, I guess my message isn't true. I guess it doesn't work. Paul couldn't have said that because he was a man that directly heard the voice of the resurrected, glorified Son of God speaking from heaven. So Paul built his confidence in the gospel, not on the purity of God's people, but on the authenticity of the Son of God. And I want to remind you of that. The credibility of our faith is not built on the purity of believers' lives, although believers should live pure lives. But the foundation of our faith is built on the fact not that we work, not that we do good, but it's built on the credibility of a risen, glorified Savior. And that glorified Savior wants to speak to us very practically through the Apostle Paul about a commitment to purity. I want you to turn your Bibles as we pick up our study of 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. And we could entitle this section of the book of Corinthians, A Commitment to Purity. Let's read the verses first of all and get some of Paul's thinking before us. And then we'll try to break it apart and allow the Spirit to reveal some of the things that we need to learn for ourselves today. Paul begins with a Corinthian slogan. I think probably something that they would put on their bumper stickers for their chariots, whatever they did, maybe placards. Uh, some of their teachers would begin with this motto, everything is permissible for me. I believe that was a Corinthian slogan. Then Paul responded, but not everything is beneficial. Then the slogan again, everything is permissible for me. And then they would go on and say this, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But then Paul responded, but God will destroy them both. Then Paul went on to teach us. Listen, brothers and sisters, Paul would say, listen, your body's not meant for sexual immorality. Your body's not meant for sexual immorality. Instead, it's meant for the Lord. It's meant for the Lord, and the Lord is for your body. We're going to talk about that relationship. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. God raised the Son of God bodily from the dead, and the Lord will raise your body from the dead as well. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Have you forgotten that your body are the limbs of Jesus Christ? Shall I then, as a believer, take the limbs of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? 
feel the intensity of that inconsistency because Paul responds, never! What a heinous, what an abominable thing. Then he says this, do you not know that he unites himself with a prostitute as one in body with her? For it is said that two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are in a unique sense outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body, does something within his body. And we'll talk about what that means. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, because you're the temple, because you've been purchased by the blood of Calvary, therefore honor God with your body. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, and I trust that by giving you some of the paraphrase and some of the feel of that, that it might help us to get some very difficult connections of thought about this problem of immorality before our minds. Paul's argument is a little bit difficult to follow in this passage. In fact, if you read some of the godly interpreters of the passage down through the years, there's been a lot of discussion about this. But I believe that Paul, first of all, begins by pointing out to us that we do have freedom in Christ. But it's a freedom not to indulge, which Paul would go on to say is not going to be a freedom at all, but it will be slavery. But you have received freedom in Christ to serve, to express love for everyone. And so we go back to verse 12 and let's look at this slogan which Paul repeats three times in the book of Corinthians. He says it here twice. He'll also say it again when he deals with the problem of idolatry in chapter 10. The Corinthians were saying, everything is permissible for me. I am free. Everything is lawful. Everything is permitted. I can do whatever I want to do. And then the Corinthians applied it to a very specific area of the area of food and the area of sexuality. Now, let's pick up on what they developed along the lines of food. He says the Corinthian slogan was food for the stomach. And then they would go on to argue like this, and sex for the body. You see this connection? Food for the stomach, sex for the body. Food for the stomach equals freedom. And sex for the body, according to the Corinthians, would equal freedom as well. Now, this was a very powerful argument. In fact, if you pushed it, it could sound very credible, as incredible as it sounds to our own ears today. What the Corinthian false teachers were saying was that there's no difference between the sexual physical appetite and your bodily hunger for food. It's just all physical desire. Now, that should sound like a very something that you've been exposed to a lot in your own culture. In fact, in the American culture back in the 60s, and it's still a very dominant view today, is that sex is just a physical drive, just like hunger is a physical drive. When you get hungry, when your stomach tells you, I'm empty, I want to eat, you have every right to go and eat a good meal and to enjoy it, 
And you can eat whatever you'd like to eat. And you have freedom to do that. Now, all of you would pretty much agree with that. Although in the first century, the Jewish believers would have had a lot of trouble with that. Because you see, under Jewish law, following the Old Testament scriptures, there were many rules and regulations about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. Because the Lord was carving out a people for himself. He wanted to train them in obedience. He was training them under the law to bring them to Christ. And one of the things he did under the old covenant was to give several rules and regulations about food. Now, many people down through the centuries have argued that those rules and regulations about food were telling us that some of the food was evil. In other words, pigs were unclean equals they were sinful. Now, they smell like they're sinful. Some of my neighbors have some pigs and they do smell sinful. And I can understand why the Lord might have said, well, they're unclean. And therefore, they're sinful. But that's not what God was saying. And this is something that you can readily accept. But it's something in the first century that was very hard to accept for Jewish believers. You see, in Mark chapter 7, the Lord Jesus himself taught, food goes into your stomach, and the Lord talked very openly and down to earth, and then it goes out. You know, through your system, and he says it goes into your stomach, out of your system, your body takes what's good for it, dumps what isn't, and that's all it is. It's just a material thing. Morality does not dwell in a physical, material thing called a pig or called any other food. For example, what the Lord is saying here, I remember a friend of mine many years ago, we went to eat pizza. It was one of those deals where we were going to go two and two and two and two, and I was going to split the cost of a pizza with him. So I started out, well, let's get Canadian bacon. I like Canadian bacon. Sorry, I can't. I said, why not? Why can't you? can't get it. I said, well, let's get sausage. No, I can't get that either. I said, well, um, what do you want to get on it? I said, just cheese. I said, just cheese. No meat on it too. No, no, we can't mix meat and cheese. I said, why not? He said, because I obey the food laws of the Old Testament. I said, why didn't you tell me that before I joined with you as my partner? (laughs) Who wants to eat a lousy pizza with just cheese on it? That brother did not understand what Paul was saying here because Paul does not negate the Corinthian slogan that the food is for the stomach. The Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 7 declared all foods clean. So the Lord gives himself an axe. Remember when the food came down from heaven? And Peter saw the unclean food and the Lord said, kill and eat. The Lord God commanded him to kill and eat. The Lord used that object lesson to help Peter to realize that he now needed to reach out to Gentiles. And Cornelius' servants were right at the door at the end of that vision. But the Lord also was teaching Peter, you're in a new age. You're under a new covenant. Eat whatever you want to eat. Don't be controlled by it. Because Paul starts out, everything is permitted, but I am to serve. I am to serve, not live just to meet my own needs. And also, I'm not to come under the mastery of anything. Believers get uptight about food. Now, you're not to be mastered by it. And some of you that, are, that really have difficulty in that, I think all of us, if we're honest, 
can understand how we can be mastered. You know, when you just start tanking it down, you know, you get nervous and you just start eating and eating and eating and eating and eating. And then you feel so guilty and you swear when you're just ready to bust, I'm going to go on a diet tomorrow. That's part of that lack of control over our physical appetite. That is wrong. That's sinful. And we need to pray for one another in that. But I want to warn you about some of the movements that will say, well, you shouldn't eat that. You shouldn't eat that. You shouldn't eat that. You shouldn't eat that. The Scripture is saying all foods are clean and they can be enjoyed. The Lord was saying that the Old Testament laws were not fundamentally laws of universal morality and of universal health. It's true that, like, for example, some of the unclean animals in the Old Testament, like pigs, if they weren't cured properly, could produce trichinosis. But trichinosis can also dwell in beef. The fundamental reality behind those laws was not a health thing or a sinful thing. It was a teaching tool that was used by the Lord. Are you hearing me? Because my brother was very deceived about obeying the Old Testament laws. In fact, if you want to obey the food laws of the Old Testament, Galatians will tell you then you need to go on and obey all the laws, which is about 613 of them. And none of the Old Testament saints could really do it. I know I can't do it. And you'll only get yourself caught in a bind of trying to serve God by obeying rules and regulations. You know what else you'll do? you'll starve a very legitimate, joyful appetite that God put inside of you. You should be able to sit down at a good meal and not eat till you're sick, but to eat a normal, healthy meal. And before you have that meal, you should be able to bow your head and say, Lord, we live in a bountiful land and we have so much to be thankful for. I thank you for this joyous gift of physical food. And eat it with joy and with contentment. Now, some of you have diets because of health needs. I'm not talking about that. Maybe the Lord will make it up to you in heaven. I know there's diets that do relate to our health. But I want us to be very careful about ever equating a certain kind of food to sinfulness. Because the Scripture declares that all foods are clean. So Paul agreed with the Corinthians about that. But what the Corinthians went on to say is, just like food is a material thing that meets our physical appetites, it just goes into our stomach, and therefore it has no religious significance. The Corinthians would argue just like I'm arguing now. They would go on to say this, though, that sex is just a physical appetite, just to be used for your body. Therefore, do whatever you want to sexually. You see the power of that argument? And that's where Paul said no to the Corinthians. One of the first things that I want you to realize as we talk about sexual purity today is that whether you know it or not, there's a big difference between having sexual relations with someone and eating with somebody. A big difference. Now, all of you know that, but a lot of this world is telling you no. It's all just physical. It's all just passions, and appetites that you have. That's a lie. I want you to nail that one down. There's a big difference between a physical appetite to eat and a sexual desire to be satisfied. What's the difference? The sexual desire relates to relationship. 
It has to do not just with a material thing like eating a loaf of bread. You see, you can't ever treat sex like that because you have sex when a man goes to a prostitute. He has sex with a person. He has sex with another being, with another individual that's made in the image of God. And sexual immorality always does a distortion to that relationship. Sexual immorality always has to do with treating someone else as a thing, as an it, not as a person. When there's sexual immorality, the person forgets that there's a daughter of a father there. They forget that there's a potential wife of somebody else. Maybe there is the wife of somebody else. Whenever there's sexual immorality, there's always a forgetting that the other person is not an it. It's not a loaf of bread that just meets physical needs. It's much more than that. It's not an it at all. It's a person. And that's what Paul goes on to argue with the Corinthians. How does he refute this? He talks about the value of our body. So what I'm telling you here is that Paul negates this joining of food for the stomach, sex for the body. He negates this whole analogy that the Corinthians presented. What he went on to do was to talk to each and every one of us about the value of our physical body. I want to stress it again. Every one of you that has problems in the sexual area will have problems accepting the value that I'm going to tell you in the next few minutes of your physical body. You can be a young adolescent and you get pimples all over your face and you think nobody would ever like you and you hate your body. You hate the way you look physically. You hate, as a man, you hate the fact that you're short or you hate the fact that you're too tall. You hate the fact that you're too fat. Whatever it might be, you're down on your body. If you're really honest, it's very easy to get down on your body. After all, we, you know, you look at the tube and you look at a whole series of tens. They're all beautiful, all handsome guys, all beautiful young women. And man, like we're comparing ourselves to that constantly. And so we can get down on our body. And so we start to say, well, I'm not very valuable. Some of you girls say, nobody would ever want me. Nobody would ever desire me. So all Satan has to do is to bring somebody into your life that tells you that they do desire you and you're insecure. You don't feel like there's any value and you're a goner. That's why you need to listen. I want you to listen to what Paul says about every one of our bodies today. He begins with this. The value of our body, first of all, relates to the purpose of our body. If I were to say... Why did God give you your body? What are you supposed to use your body for? How would you answer that question? A lot of you haven't even thought about this because we just take our body for granted. It's here. I got it. My mom gave it to me and my dad. Here it is. And most of us don't go on and say, well, what am I supposed to do with my body? I want you to notice something. Paul says this about the value of our body. He says the body's not meant for sexual immorality. There in the end of verse 13. Our body's not meant for sexual immorality, but it's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And I want you to think about that. Our body is meant for the Lord. You see, I'm to use my voice to glorify and to praise and honor the Lord. A lot of you have been doing that. 
When you sang, you used your voice and you used your lungs. You used your body. You needed a body in order to praise God. And God responded to that. That was a great thing to do with your body. You know the unique thing about God is He looks at every one of you and say, you say, well, man, I can't sing. The Lord knows that. But you can do something else. God has a unique purpose for every single body. God has a unique design. No one looks exactly the same. Even identical twins don't look exactly the same. That gives tremendous value to your body. It's a priceless thing. It's to be used for the Lord. It's to be used, as Paul will tell us later, to glorify Him. It's to be used as the dwelling of Him. Think about that. Your body, if you have received Jesus Christ into your life, is the dwelling place of God. We can evaluate everything we do with the statement, Would I do this if Jesus were visibly right beside me? He's not beside you. He's inside you 